This is the Barneys Podcast. I'm Nortagori. This week, I'm in studio with Elaine Welteroth. She is the former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. When she took that role on, she was the youngest editor-in-chief in Condé Nast history and the second-ever Black editor-in-chief at the company. She was at the helm of Teen Vogue in 2016 during the run-up to the election, and like communities across the country, the voice of Teen Vogue got a lot louder. Since then, Elaine has written a memoir called More Than Enough. Well, maybe I won't call it a memoir. I hate the term memoir. (laughs) This is an offering. This is a testimony, a manifesto. In the book, Elaine shares her story of the boundary-pushing career she's led so far. And she shares her ideas on building up confidence for other women and women of color to know that you are enough, even and especially when you've been told that you are not. When Elaine and I sat down together, we were meeting at the end of a long, busy day. I wanted to settle in and start the conversation by setting intentions for our time together. So I asked her what hers was. You start. I need to think. Hold on. Okay. My intention for today's conversation is to create like a podcast episode version of the biggest, tightest hug around every single stranger listening to this because I spent the last two days reading your book nonstop and felt so seen and heard and believed. And I want everybody listening to this episode to feel the same way. Hmm. You're going to make me cry in the first 50 seconds of this I'm podcast so interview. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was in the car on the uh, way here, like tearing up. And I was like, wow, I, wow. I'm going to receive that. My okay. intention for this conversation is to find a way to receive mm. the love and yeah. the feedback and the sharing and the conversations that are going to come from this work that I have put into the world. I think in moments like this, as you're writing your book, as you're putting your full truth out there, it's one of those things where you realize like this was never about you. Mm-mm. It was always about something way bigger than you. Absolutely. That today we are talking about what it's like to feel and understand and truly realize that you are more than enough, which is the name of your book. So clearly I'm repping hard for my book right so now. Hard. And on this podcast, we kick off by asking what you're wearing slash why you're wearing. And I saw on your booty, there was a little pocket that read more than enough. And I'm staring right at your gold necklace that says the same thing. So just give me the head to toe (laughs) rundown. So, okay. I am wearing high-waisted jeans from actually Aritzia. Wait, so so the jeans are from Aritzia, and then who embroidered your pocket? Aritzia. So no, yes, sir. yes. It was like some denim event that they were having in yeah. LA, and they had someone there customizing <gasps> the pants. And I was, and they're like, "What would you like?" And I was like, "You know what? Can you do more than enough?" It, he's like, "Sure. What's that?" I'm like, "It's the name of my book." Oh my gosh! And oh my it's gosh, so funny so because I, I I kind of forget that they say that until yeah. people react to it, and it's just kind of a nice conversation starter, you know. And absolutely, and I have this necklace as well, which I will be selling as merch awesome. um, with my book on my book tour. I think it's a great mantra, you know what I mean, for us to keep close to our heart. It's a it's a reminder, and I think hopefully this will be a movement of of women really 
pushing back against every force that tells us that we are not enough, and especially the voices in our own heads that we have internalized and those messages that we've internalized um, that make us shrink and that make us feel like we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not successful enough, we're not woke enough. The list goes on. I want this necklace, this book, and any work that I do in the world to be a reminder to women that you are already more than enough. You already have everything you need to do, everything you're meant to do. Mm. And that the feeling the sensation, the knowing that you're more than enough can be realized even when you are a work in progress. A lot of people talk about, you know, what it's like to be more more than enough or to realize like your worth. And I think sometimes it, it's something that's talked about without context. Yes. Uh, it's talked about with lack of substance. Yeah. And I want you to tell me the first time you heard the phrase, more than enough or somebody told you that you were more than enough? You know, every woman I know, even if they present as like totally together, totally confident, Mm. we all have these voices in our heads that are saying we are not enough. I, that's not our fault. (laughs) We live in a society where for generations women have been repressed and oppressed, particularly women of color. And I was thinking about sort of how similar so many of our, so many women's life stories actually are. And there's like an arc, right? Like we're born into this world with a limitless sense of possibility. We could do anything. (laughs) We don't know we're black or white or female. We are, there's just like this unbridled energy. Mm -hmm. And, and then it sort of starts to get chipped away at and we start to shrink because of the expectations the world puts on us and the labels and the boxes that we squeeze ourselves into. And the fear people instill in and us. And the fear people instill into us. You know, I, I think the, it's weird. Like the way we're talking about this book, it almost sounds like a self-help book or like some sort of like spiritual man- manifesto or like confidence playbook. And it's not that at all. In fact, I intentionally, very intentionally did not write an advice book. I do not think there is a blueprint for how to right. be a fully realized woman in the world. But I think that as humans, we learn best through stories, sharing them, hearing them. And I feel like I know for a fact that there are there's power and there are gems locked up in the stories that women never tell. Oh, yeah. And I hope I hope that young women, black women, women of color, young leaders who read this book will be inspired to tell their own stories as well. So I want my story and my voice to be a part of a much larger chorus of stories of young women trailblazers who are doing their part to push this culture forward. And I will tell you, I had to battle myself even and like mm. writing this book at this point in my career. There are those voices in my head. that are like, who are you to do this at 32? I was 32? just going to ask you, like, w- what made you decide to write a memoir-like book at the age of 32. First of all, I hate the term memoir. I know. I know. And I actually do not classify this as a memoir. As that too. I don't. I I think that the term is riddled with self-importance and a certain sort of pretentiousness that has nothing to do with this project. You know, it's interesting. It's like even that notion who are you to tell your story at 32 as a woman, mm-hmm. as a young woman, 
as a young woman of color is the patriarchy talking. And so I I have those internalized like messages that I wrestle with. And I actually will tell you a funny story. I finally had finished my manuscript. I got it in. I came home for the holidays. And my brother literally says to me, why would you write an autobiography at 32, dude? Isn't that something that just like old people do? And I was like, dude, first of all, I would have probably thrown my manuscript away if you had said that to me about two weeks ago when I was in the depths of writing this. So glad you waited until after I turned in to do to say that to me. Absolutely. Next, I was like, you know what? They don't call them autobiographies anymore. <laughs> I, I was like, <laughs> I, like I had, I was like so rattled that I, that's like all I could think to say to him. But afterwards, it really made me think. I was like, you know what? That's okay that he thinks that. That's okay that if someone might for think him, that. Though. It's a not for you, and B, I'm part of a generation that is going to change that very mindset to create space and to offer opportunities and invitations to other women to tell their stories as early as they want, as much as they want. And I think that we we have to remember as women leaders, we have been deprived of role models of women of color for generations. We have catch up work to do. This is an offering. This mm. is, if anything, a testimony. It is a manifesto. I hope to hopefully create a new genre for this lane of folks who are in progress. You talked a lot about how, oh, I got chills when I was when you said I would come home every day and I'd watch Oprah at 4 p.m. sharp. I was watching Oprah at 4 p.m. sharp <laughs> every single day from like seven or eight years old. And I didn't know the term journalist until mm-hmm. I was like in middle school. But I was obsessed with her curiosity and the way that she got people to open up in such a vulnerable way. And... As an Arab American woman, she was the only thing I could remotely relate to on television. Like I had a point where I was dyeing my hair blonde and wearing colored contacts because I couldn't come up with another explanation for the lack of diversity on television other than you had to look like that to go into television. Mm -hmm. And what else were we supposed to do? And it was just what an honor it is to be a part of a, a group of women who are reminding the generation coming up that you're not alone, yep. that you have us, yep. that we're here to take care of you. Yep. You compared writing this book to giving birth a lot. What part of the process itself was so laboring? I probably should stop comparing it to giving birth, <laughs> given that I have not ever given birth. We will <laughs> the do, mothers out there probably we will like touch base when you give birth one day <laughs> to and compare say, notes. What was it like? Yes. Right, right, right. What part of writing a book is not labor intensive? It's such a singular experience, especially as a journalist, which you would I relate to. We're trained to tell other people's stories. We are trained to ask other people questions. Turning that lens on yourself, it's real work. I knew that there are the specific stories that needed to be told. You know, identifying, am I really going to go there? Mm. Am I really ready? Um, And so I really went into this with really clear intentions. But I will tell you, now having to talk about it, yeah. Is a different like I I just I'm so used to being you. I'm so used to being the person asking the questions. I'm really like a lot less comfortable being the one answering the questions. Yeah. Especially about a project that is just so uh personal and vulnerable. 
we have a saying in Islam and in Arabic called tawakkul, which is like true uh, surrender mm-hmm. to what your destiny is. Yes. And that it was exactly where you needed to be when you ended up on the set of Serena Williams's cover shoot for Ebony Magazine. Share a little bit about that story. I think it's so inspiring. Oh, thank you. I mean, that literally was the beginning of the rest of my life. Yeah. I stalked this woman named Harriet Cole, who I had found online. Well, I really found her through her work at Ebony, but it was her bio and her career trajectory that really just honestly became the blueprint for what I set out to do with my career. She was my first career role model, and Mm -hmm. I stalked her to get her attention, to have an uh, an opportunity to connect with her. Not only did you stalk her, (laughs) okay— But you were on the phone with, I think it was her assistant, saying, yeah, I'd love to bring a cup of coffee to her workplace. And then the woman was like, aren't you in California? And you were like, yeah, I'll get a, I'll take a flight and get her a cup of coffee and come to her workplace for 15 minutes, which I wasn't in California. I was living in D.C., but I did the exact same thing. No way. For Soledad O'Brien. No and way. Monfort. Yeah. And I did took you the it? train to New York. Yes. Absolutely. And did you give her the coffee? Yeah. And did you, like, what happened? And I spent the day with them. Like I said, a lot of parallels, obsessively shadowing different journalists, because those were the people we had to see because we were like, you made it so that you it could be easier for me. Right. So, yeah, you were stalking this so woman. So I stalked her. And the long story short is that I eventually got a chance to connect with her. And by the time we hung up the phone, I really thought I was never going to hear from her again. And I was absolutely fine with that. You know, I I, I was like... (laughs) You made peace. I made peace with it. I was like, I'm on my track now, thanks to this woman. And then five months later, she called me out of the blue Mm. and said, I have an opportunity. I'm looking for an assistant. I'll be in LA for a shoot. Will you meet me there? Work with me on set. Um, I have $250 to give you for the day. I was like, I will literally pay you my whole life savings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to work for you for a day. So yeah, totally. You're going to pay me? This is crazy. Yeah. So I, I go yeah. down there and she does not tell me that it is a cover shoot for with Serena, Serena Williams. Williams. So I get on so- set and I'm like literally pinching myself. But you know someone on set. I know the hairdresser. Yeah. Serena's hairdresser just so happens to be the, my prom hair stylist (laughs) and also someone who came up in my aunt's hair salon in San Jose, California. So there was this good omen from the very beginning. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I mean, I got it. I got the job offer at the end of that shoot. I felt so alive. That was the first day of my life working where I felt like I was aligned with my purpose. Mm. I was, I was supposed to be there that day. I was supposed to meet Harriet. And at the end of that day, when she offered me the job, I said, yes, even though I had a whole other internship lined up. You had an internship with Essence. Yes, which was my dream job, by the way. And by the way, Essence was not a magazine I was aspiring to work for, per se. But I really wanted to work with Harriet because I just had a knowing deep down, to your point about surrender, I had been praying for so long for direction and for uh, guidance. uh, guidance, And and I really just wanted to know what my path was going to be in life, like what career am I meant to be in? And once I got this kind of aha moment of connecting with Harriet and knowing that this is my person, um, I was sort of laser focused. And so I moved to New York. I worked a site unseen and I started working with Harriet in the trenches as an intern at Ebony Magazine. And I, I would not have ever been able to 
accomplish what I accomplished at Teen Vogue. And I would not yeah. be where I am today sitting with you had I not started with Harriet at that job at Ebony. And I, people don't really know that part. I think I think if anyone, if you're even aware of me, you're aware of me because of Teen Vogue. But I think it's important to remember where you came from and um, to reflect on all of those lessons that actually shape you. It's such an interesting point to make that your gut feeling was to follow a person and a mentor and a spirit that you connected with because yes. that's so rare as opposed to a name or a title, or just a pretty name, a yes. job that had a yes. prettier name. I would say don't chase the sexy. Don't Absolutely. And your, your gut and your spirit tells you, tells you where to go. And I think what's more rare than a job opportunity at a, quote, sexy place is a mentor with a true good spirit and an intention. Mm -hmm. Like, those are so rare. You can't let go of those people. And you had that with your professor, M. Foss, who I was just so fascinated about. You really read my book, I really read your book. (laughs) Like, I cried and I laughed and I hugged you when you weren't in the same room as me. But there was a moment where you were talking to your mentor and it was the first time you said out loud that you wanted to work for a magazine. Mm-hmm. The response that you got from your mentor was like, duh, no, absolutely, absolutely. And there's yeah, su- there's like me. power in that affirmation and the validation that guarantees your success almost. Mm. And I remember reflecting on this point and it's like when people that we love and trust tell us things, we believe them. Mm -hmm. Affirmation is so important. I mean, it's interesting hearing you reflect on that because I'm just realizing that the opposite is also very true. Yeah. When you have people that you love and trust who don't see you and who do not encourage growth and expansion, how detrimental that is. So even more so, I look back on those turning points in my journey where I had, thankfully, Mm. the right voices around me, the right people saying, yes, you can. Um, Because if I hadn't had them, I genuinely can tell you, I I don't think I ever would have even moved to New York. And it's just so real that, you know, there is a power in women supporting women. There, like, it really... You shine brightest when you're surrounded by women who are also shining alongside of you. And I feel like I've been blessed to have friends and a mother, first of all. By the way, aren't mothers everything? Yeah, no. Good mothers are like the bedrock. I acknowledge that all of the time. I credit humanity. I oh I credit my success and wherever I am. Not even my success like career wise. I think success in my spirit. Oof. Like just not being a broken human anymore. I really and there's always parts of us that are broken, but there's a there's a healing power that only exists within mothers. Um, One thing that you say also, you didn't sugarcoat the experience of becoming editor in chief of Teen Vogue. You were super real about it. You had 49 minutes to decide if you were going to accept a job offer and the press release about editor in chief was going to come out knowing you would be the youngest editor-in-chief in Condé Nast's history and the second ever black editor-in-chief at a Condé Nast publication. You had 49 minutes to make that decision, and you knew that the offer you were given was not fair for the position that was being offered. I want to know 
how you felt opening up about that. It was singularly the hardest part for me to write about. Mm. Because... You know people are reading this. Yeah, people are going to read this. And I wrote this for the people to read this. I wrote this for the young woman who will face a very similar situation Mm -hmm. and who will hopefully have at least this story to say, I'm not alone. This happens. This is how it happens. Here's how I can assert agency in a way that I really didn't know how to assert agency in the moment. And I think that's the point of sharing stories, right? Like we are sharing tools when we share our stories. And and I think it's my responsibility to be real. I think like all you ever see is the headlines and the highlight reels. And there's so much to celebrate, by the way, in that opportunity. And I was very grateful. And I am very proud of what we were able to do with Teen Vogue. But I do think that on the flip side, what we we never see are the, you know, the underside of a dream realized. And and I think that it's important to hold space for those harder conversations too. I think it always looks really good on the outside and there's always more to the story. And um, I felt like this was my opportunity to dig into an issue that is so much bigger than me that if you ask any woman who is in a leadership position, if she has ever felt undervalued, (laughs) <laughs> or underpaid yeah. or or ha- if she's ever been put in a compromising position yep. professionally, she will tell you yes. And she will tell you her story. Yeah. And there are, there are so many similarities in all of our stories. We just don't tell them. We just don't tell them publicly. There's a certain stigma and shame around talking about the the stuff that didn't feel so good on the ride, you know, on the ride Absolutely. to the top or whatever. I don't even know if I believe in that term, but... The point is for me in that particular story, the reason that I shared it is that the issue of pay equity in this country and all over the world is real. And we talk about it now, but only in platitudes, only through the prism of statistics and these platitudes. But we don't really share the nuances of how it really plays out in real life, in real time, and to who it happens to. And so while I can read a story about like how to ask for the job you want, how to like get that promotion and, you know, or, or read stats about this, this pay gap issue in our country, if a woman is not sitting me down and saying, this is how it, it happens, this is how it happened to me and here's what to do, right? then I'm still ill-equipped, you know, when it happens because it always takes you by surprise. And, you know, and that, and that being said, there still is that voice that's like, well, you don't want to seem ungrateful. Oh my gosh. I, you know? That was something that I think everybody can relate to to an extent. I remember towards the end of my, like one of my last jobs, uh, I had asked for a raise for the first time because I had found out my team members had gotten multiple raises and I had never gotten one. Mm. And I was met with like a list of things that were given to me, but it was like everything that you to benefit. For. <laughs> Not even worked for. It was just like I was able to execute on ideas that would benefit the entire company and do my job as great as I can. Um, and I was met with like, I thought this would be enough for you. Why would you need more? Right, right. That sense of entitlement. People think that you're entitled when you are only expecting and hoping for and working for. It was or just maybe, like so baffling to me. Yeah. And it was also this sense in this notion of like, well, other places wouldn't have given you the opportunity that I did. And I'm just like, but you saw the ROI on the opportunity that you gave me. 
And there's this like weird shift when it comes to what true inclusion looks like yeah. and what the the return on investment is when we decide to be more inclusive and diverse in certain situations. And there's never a time where having diverse people and ways of thought and perspectives and backgrounds and understandings and keeping those people at decision-making tables so that it is real inclusion, there's ever a time that that fails people or makes you regress in your company. It's a business imperative if you want to stay competitive in a global marketplace where by the year 2040, is it that the world, that our country is going to be, you know, majority people of color exactly this is having more people of color and from different backgrounds at the table only makes the product better every single time every single time and we bring a value there is value to our voice and our perspectives and um i just think it's still we have work to do to get to a place where we know that value and when we can claim it and name it and not feel guilty about it Here's the thing that I don't think, I mean, many people aren't going to think about and realize, but I also heavily related to, and I'm really happy that you talked about. So you're a journalist, and I'm a journalist, and we were often labeled as activists because Mm -hmm. of who we were Mm -hmm. and our identity Mm -hmm. in doing the job. So I remember the first time people started labeling me as an activist, I was like, I'm not doing anything except for my job as a journalist. And I happen to wear a hijab. I happen to be a Muslim woman. So why are you so inclined to to calling me an activist? Hmm. And then I realized if you're going to continuously take that term, then I'm going to own it. And I realized that the way I was telling stories and my existence in the spaces that had never welcomed me before in and itself was a form of activism. Yes. And there's a line that you wrote in your book, and it's sometimes just being yourself is the radical act. When you occupy space and systems that weren't built for you, your authenticity is your activism. Why is it important for us to realize that being your most authentic self Mm. is a radical form of activism? Hmm. It is so important because I think for so long we have attributed certain a certain definition to the term activist that is very exclusive and finite. And it's really just reserved for those people who are on the front lines of every march exactly. who are like cuffing themselves to the White House. And certainly if you're not dedicating your life to an activist's cause, then how dare you call yourself an activist? Similar to the feminist right. label. And it's why for so long, people did not want to join that club. But now I'm so grateful to live in a generation where we are expanding those definitions to make them more inclusive so that we can see ourselves as part of this larger tribe of people who are pushing the world forward just by being who they are from where they sit. But I think for someone to see or their contribution to pushing the world forward, pushing the culture forward, just being themselves is really, 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 really important. I think it's a step one, Mm. you know, for anyone who's been repressed or pressed, wearing masks, assimilating just to fit in, just to survive. You need reminders to take them off. You need reminders that, you know, when the world tells you to shrink, expand, like you need someone to tell you that in order for you to even start at level one of just being who you really are. And only from that place can you do impactful work. 
I've had a 10-year career, and I think that the most impactful work that I've done by far happened in the last two years of it because it took that long for mm. me to even show up fully and to be even able to speak up for my community in a way that I didn't have the courage to and didn't have the language for before that. I spent a lot of time of my career assimilating and just trying to fit in. Gosh, yeah. Just to feel good enough, just to feel worthy enough to be in the room, just to be respected. Yeah. And you work so hard at that for so long, and then you realize that that is actually working as it's it's going to be detrimental to what your real goal is in being in those rooms, which mm. is to change the alchemy and to change the conversations that are happening and to change the output. In your own terms, in order to change the stories, you have to change the storytellers so that everybody who's coming up can see themselves represented across all platforms of media. One of the things I learned at Teen Vogue as an editor is that the most powerful thing we can do when we have a platform is to pass the mic. Absolutely. To someone who wouldn't have it otherwise and who can speak on an issue yep. from a first person lived experience mm -hmm. that we could not. Like there, there were many times where I realized we are not the authorities on this. And no one is voices. You've just passed never passed them, the mic. Yeah, you've never passed the mic and amplified the voices that they do have and have had and for generations. And you have the platform to do so. Absolutely. And and the thing is, listen, we're you. this is like a conversation between two journalists. Yeah. But everybody listening to this has a platform, too. Absolutely. And you have people in your communities that you can influence. And I, I have always said about, you know, the role of being a, a journalist or an editor is that you're sort of a cultural agenda setter. And just by... I have this. I have a quote oh, you pulled oh, up go, that I'm going to read. Let, let, me let, me, jump ahead. let me just keep reading to you. Let me go. just keep, keep reading your own read book Read my to words you. to me, girl. <laughs> I like it. I like the way it sounds with your voice. Go oh ahead. Oh my gosh. Yeah, if you need a backup for the audiobook. Um, are you reading your <laughs> own audiobook? I did. I did. I recorded it already. And guess who's on it with me? Who? My mom and dad. No. Yes. Which, P.S., my mom is the hero of the story. She's the shero of the book. What I was going to say from your words, uh, <laughs> because we're talking about this and we're talking about cultural agenda setters. But one thing that as journalists we learn is is the emphasis on objectivity, right, and, and remaining unbiased. But one thing that we don't talk about is that if you are a news director— Choosing what stories get priority and what stories are even worth being covered mm -hmm. is a bias in itself. Mm -hmm. If I come to you with a story about a community that you're not that familiar with and mm -hmm. you're like, I just don't think that this works for us. I don't think it works for our readers. It doesn't work for you because you're not familiar with this right. or you've never cared about this before, mm -hmm. but it exists. Mm -hmm. And and that in itself, I think, is a form of bias. And what you say is... I felt compelled to find a way to put this pain to work. As writers, as magazine editors, as people with public platforms, we are the cultural agenda setters. We signal with our editorial decisions what the priorities are. Can you elaborate on that? Whew. Unpack that. I mean, gone are the days when there are a handful of gatekeepers who are determining yep the news that we read and that influences um, our thinking and, and our decision-making. Every single day, we are all scrolling this thing called social media, this thing called Instagram, this thing called Twitter. Mm -hmm. And we are looking for answers. We are getting inspired by what we see. And so from that perspective, we all 
are cultural agenda setters and we all have a platform and therefore we all have a responsibility. We need to be more thoughtful about how we use those platforms. So what advice do you have for people on how to consume content properly? Hmm. We live in clickbait culture where people just read a headline, retweet it and move on. And literally people judge the story based on the picture that was taken. Oh, yeah. That, that's the culture we live in. Yep. And, and you know what? It taught me an important lesson as a journalist. Images matter. Mm-hmm. And often they are telling the stories because people aren't reading the words. And so it is really important in this climate to be conscious of the images that we're putting into the world and and also to shift the focus of this diversity and inclusion conversation to the image makers and making sure that we're holding the fashion industry and the media you know, world accountable for making sure that the people behind the scenes mm. creating these images are as diverse as the images that are being projected into the world now, now that it's a priority. Yeah. Now suddenly that everyone's talking about diversity and inclusion, it's not enough to just put a, a woman with a hijab on the cover yep. or to put a black woman on the cover or to put a plus size model in your ad campaign if your team does not reflect that same diversity. We're also talking about the fact that people use the words diversity and inclusion interchangeably. They do. And they're not. Diversity can be that representation on the surface level. Inclusion is a seat at the decision-making table, and that has to be clarified time and time again because if you are not representative at the table that is actually pulling the strings and signing the checks and pushing culture forward because the people that you don't see are the ones who are really doing it, Mm -hmm. then the spreads lack authenticity. And by the way, people are smart enough to see through it now. There's there's a major shift in the power dynamic here in in media and and in many other industries, but specifically with this example, it's like, we used to need these magazine covers, yeah. right, to be validated, to be credible in our careers. And now these magazines actually need these entities, in some cases more, we to get to the clicks, that. to stay alive, <laughs> to be relevant. And so the, yeah. the, the, the value exchange has shifted. Yep. And so we need to recognize our value when we're stepping into these opportunities and know that we that with that opportunity comes the responsibility yeah. to help change that system from the inside out. And you do that by simply saying, I'd like to know if there is somebody who looks like me working on this story. Oh, yes. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And we have that power. And by the way, it's not that hard. This is the moment where people would actually say, oh, we can make that happen. Yeah. And it's all positive. And then everybody gets to be a part of the solution. You know, I, I think that's what's so exciting about being mm. a creative person and a young person and a woman and a woman of color today. Yeah. Because we've never had this space to walk into these opportunities and help change things for the better. You know yeah. what I mean? No, I never. Like, I feel it. I feel it. And. I've tried to find different ways of doing this. Like I even now moving forward with like partnering with brands. One thing that we Mm -hmm. say is like we want to make sure that we have a conversation beforehand and understanding why do you think it's so important for me to be a part of this. Mm. One thing that comes up often is like having these conversations are so uncomfortable. I hear that so many times and I'm like my entire life has been uncomfortable. My entire, (laughs) like every space that I walk into, I sacrifice a little piece of myself to make you comfortable. So can we talk about that? 
it is time for you to get uncomfortable. And I've always said everything that you want is just outside of your comfort zone. So you should want to be uncomfortable too. This is in our hands now. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to demand and command and build with people in a way to say, this isn't us trying to take anything. It's us trying to build all. with you. It's Absolutely. us trying to grow with you. We want to see you do better. We want to be of service yes. to our communities this way. Yes, It's so wonderful. One thing that uh, that really stuck with me, of course, is a reference to Oprah in your mm-hmm. book. There are several of them, which is... Auntie Oprah. Auntie Oprah. Like, I really want to just start saying that. Didn't you <laughs> just meet Oprah? I actually... D- and I, didn't take I a met, photo? No, no, no. I met her last year. Okay. Uh, the, at the Wrinkle in Time premiere. Yeah. And we had this moment that I will just like cherish forever. And yeah. she said my name and oh. she held my hand and she didn't gave me the, the Oprah squeeze. You know oh, how she yeah, squeezes yeah, yeah. people's arms and hands. Yes. Um, and she gave, she dropped a word on me. And then I saw her. I was actually on the red carpet at the Hollywood Reporter Empowerment Awards in L.A. recently. I was literally on the red carpet oh, that's at right. you the same the time carpet. as her. She was next to me and I was just like, what do I do? And I just, I just chickened out and I'm yeah. not proud of it. And I don't want to talk about it, Nor. Okay, I'm so but it's sorry. okay because I was in her presence and I was breathing the same air. Yeah. Well, breathing the same air. And I hope she'll way. read my book. We'll have to I manifest think that. I think she that. will. You mentioned her saying that our only obligation is to listen for life's whispers. And when you don't listen to the whisper, it becomes a roar. So I want to wrap mm. and ask you, what is the whisper you are hearing right now? Hmm. This is going to sound so cliche. I, I want I want the cliche, but I want it it's, real talk. It's real. Yeah. It's really real. Being on this second day of answering questions about my book has me in a really uncomfortable position. Yeah. I'm not used to this. And uh, at this particular moment, I'm like, I'm having to practice what I preach. So yeah. I am the, the, the whisper is you are more than enough. Mm. It's a mantra that I'm trying to practice one every single day. One of the things day. I say in every single one of my talk is like I share a story of me being super judgmental and a jerk. And I say, mm. you know, they say that we need to learn and hear the things that we even teach about. Like mm. we need to learn from ourselves. Like the, mm-hmm. we talk about the things that we need the most. Yes. And you're living proof that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have this book coming out. You're also a judge on Project Runway, <laughs> which by the way, I grew up watching. So I think like I'm cheering you on because I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I've basically bared my soul here with you, Nor. I don't know okay. what else. Aside I, from turning around and showing you the more than enough on my butt. I, don't I would know love enough. to see. We'll do that. when the, I was going to say we're going to do that when the cameras are off, but I guess we'll do when the mics are off. <laughs> Elaine, I mean, I don't even have to say that it was a pleasure because I was so here with you. Oh thank my you. gosh. Thank you so much. You're so good at what you do. Thank you. I just want you to know. I'm so honored. You can get Elaine's book, More Than Enough, anywhere books are sold. The Barney's podcast is hosted by me, Nort Glory, and produced by Barney's and Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Jessica Glazer. The show is executive produced by Anna Deutsch, Greta Cohn, and me. And it's edited by Lacey Roberts. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review the show. It really helps other people find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening.